old old school Toyota with a six inch lift. Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Toyota topped the list of leading car makers in quality and image until a recent series of vehicle recalls crashed the company's escalating popularity. Today, I'm in the studio with Benjamin Cole, an assistant professor of management at Fordham, who also once worked for Toyota in Tokyo. So good morning, Professor Cole. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming in. Uh, so can you tell me about the recalls and exactly what happened to Toyota's owners, their cars? What happened? Well, um, the the recall is a reflection of a conversation between the National Highway Transportation uh, Safety Administration, the NHTSA, and Toyota. So a few years ago, there were claims that there was what is called a sudden acceleration in the vehicle. And traditionally, unfortunately, this tends to be something that the actual driver is responsible for. They, they, they get in a situation where their adrenaline is flowing, they slam on what they think is the brakes, and it turns out to be the accelerator. And then, of course, they go and they say, well, this car was out of control. And uh, this is the basis for which the N- uh, NHTSA generally looks at these, uh, these types of uh, incidents. Um, and uh, so a few years ago, Toyota um, had some complaints about these sudden acceleration incidents, and uh, they really did not think it was related to electronics. They thought it was a mechanical issue and or uh, something having to do with the mats inside the car. That the mats so would slide Yeah, the mats would slide. And, and, I, and, and I actually do have a friend who had a, who had a Toyota who said that when he had it, this, the, the mats actually did slide and kind of get jammed up. And so it was believable to him that this might have been one of the causes. So Toyota went ahead and, tr- and tried to rectify the situation. They had people bring their cars back in, back into the, uh, the service centers, and they replaced those mats. But the acceleration incidents continued to happen. Now, from my understanding, there was the acceleration problem that was happening almost a year in other countries. In other countries, it was the um, acceleration problems were happening in other countries first. Then they started here, and they're in like the two thousand what nine two thousand ten Toyotas. Yeah, this is going to be a really big point in any of the lawsuits that are going to happen for Toyota. Toyota is already being sued for a couple of incidents as a result of this. But there was a question of whether it was the accelerator unit. Um, which is this uh, electronic box that is essentially made by this small company in Elkhart, Indiana. Toyota had actually done a recall of these same units in Europe a couple of years ago. But not here. But not here. And so that's what the the lawyers are sharpening their knives over uh, right now, because they're like, well, if you knew that there was a problem in Europe, why didn't you do something here in the United States? So why didn't they? I have no idea. And, uh, and, and, and that, that particular incident is the most important, but it doesn't get at the pr- really trying to figure out what the problem is. And, right. and I think that Toyota is, um, in this case, victim to its own successes. Mm-hmm. In that, first, um, Toyota is the type of place where if you figure out a way to do something really, really well, for example, if you're working on the factory floor and you figure out a different order for the lug nuts to go on to the, the tires, right. then you convince your supervisor this is better. They do tests. They figure out it actually is a little faster. They don't lose as many lug nuts or whatever it happens to be. And then they say, well, if this is better here, then it should be better everywhere. Right. And so they roll out that exact same process everywhere in the world, in every plant. So if they if they have this accelerator, which works really well with their existing systems, then they're like, well... Let's go ahead and use it in all these other systems. And so that's why we're at 8 million units right now, is that 
they can that we're, continuously yeah, use them. And, and, and in general, that's generally a good thing. I mean, you want firms to be to if, if it works and it's not broken. Well, let's use it in other places. Let's keep the cost down um, and let's be efficient. And, and it's a good, a good way of guaranteeing high quality. The problem is. If there's a problem with that unit, that's eight now million. Now that's it's repeated eight million, eight million, now that's eight million times. Eight million problems. Right. That's the that's the issue. And so Toyota is a really traditionally a really uh, lean manufacturer. Um, in their plants, they only keep enough parts for only a couple of hours. It used to be in in for example in the United States, when Ford had a plant, they would actually bring in tons and tons of these uh, of the parts that they would use, and and stack them up in inventory, and then they would use them on the line. Toyota said, well, we don't want to have that because that's just a whole bunch of inventory that's just going to cost us a lot of money right. to store its capital, et cetera. We're going to run really, really lean. And so what they did was they created this lean production system, which Toyota is very famous for. It's called the Toyota production system. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, lots of firms such as Alcoa, which is a large uh, aluminum manufacturer here in the United States, actually mimic Toyota. They have the Alcoa production system. Okay. Um, and so the system is, is, is re- really efficient in that it it reduces the number, the the amount of inventory that you have, a number of parts that are going into the cars, and um, that allows them to keep costs down. And they'll actually have these units coming in every couple of hours, like deliveries, like fresh parts oh, wow. coming in every couple of hours. It's quite it's quite amazing. But if you run a system like that, there's no slack in the system. So if everything is running smoothly, the environment is very very stable. It's a great system mm-hmm. because you keep your costs down. Everything is running smoothly. But if you have a problem, like, I don't know, a fire right. or, or a recall or something like that, then suddenly this is going to reverberate throughout so many entities. Which is what's happening now with Toyota. Which is exactly what's going on right now. Now, we have to back up a bit and tell me, you, you lived, in Toyo- uh, lived in Tokyo, you worked in Toyota. <laughs> I, I actually lived in Toyota housing. Did you really? Uh, yes. So explain to me um, how, like, tell me a little of your background. How did you get there? Uh, so I was a, a, a Japanese language and culture major at Occidental College, which is where both uh, President Obama and a former uh, congressperson, uh, Jack Kemp, went. Um, so I have both sides of the political aisle there for you all. And uh, I studied abroad in, in, in Tokyo. And when I graduated, uh, I went back to Japan and decided to make a career there. So I first worked at a publisher. And then around 1995, I joined Toyota as an international PR person. So I would do technical translations. Um, I would meet with engineers and talk about their what's-its and their gizmos and all those things. Their who's-its and what's-its. And And I would have to explain those who's-its and what's-its to my mom or to a general purpose magazine like Business Week or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was there during the time when they launched the Prius and uh, when they started doing their development on fuel cells and other things. So um, I was on the, the backside talking with engineers and really understand how Toyota kind of functions as an entity in terms of its decision making, uh, et cetera. So can you explain Toyota's corporate culture? Because you said something that was interesting to me. You said if a factory worker worker found a better way to do it. And you don't hear that often in American companies. Mm. Usually, you know, you kind of do what the boss says. So that does speak to a different culture, corporate mm. culture. Yeah, I mean, Japan is a, is is called a, a basically a bottom-up decision-making culture. Um, in the United States, you have someone like Jack Kemp, who's a CEO. He comes in, he's he's head of the ship, and he basically tells everyone, "This is what you want to, this is what we're going to do." Um, J- Japanese companies tend not to work like that. Instead, what happens is there's a lot of decision-making that happens at the bottom levels. They all come to a consensus, 
And then that information is actually passed up to the superior who then basically rubber stamps it and says, this is a good idea, let's move forward on it. So you've already got everyone on board. There's no one who actually has regrets about the decision that's being handed down because they were involved with the decision itself. Um, which means that the decision making tends to be slower because you can't just have someone come in and say, this is a problem, we're having this recall, everyone jump. Mm -hmm. Because the culture doesn't work that way. Right. And the corporate culture, culture doesn't work that way. Um, and so that's one of the one of the reasons why I'm a little bit more forgiving of what's happened to to Toyota right now, because I understand what goes on the decision making process in Japan. I'm Robin Shannon speaking with Professor Benjamin Cole about Toyota's recall troubles and the company's corporate culture. Stay with us. More of WFUV's Fordham Conversations is ahead. WFUV invites you to strike a chord for affordable housing. The recession has affected people in different ways. Some have had to choose between paying for food or rent. Others have had to leave their homes altogether. In Fairfield, Connecticut, Operation Hope offers supportive, affordable housing and other services to those in need. The group can use volunteers in carpentry, landscaping, painting, and other work. To find out more about how you can get involved with Operation Hope and similar organizations, visit the Strike Accord webpage at WFUV.org. Professor Cole, you worked at Toyota in Tokyo for a few years. Tell me about working there. Um, when I was when I was first hired, I actually was not hired as what would be called a lifetime employee. Um, I was actually hired as a contract employee. So what happened was uh, Toyota used to have two foreigners in the international PR division, two native speakers of English, which is nice to have if you're going to be talking with the uh, American press, etc., and uh, both of them got into graduate school here in the United States. They were both going to come back and get their MBAs. So they got their, uh, their acceptance letters at about the same time, and they basically told the boss, well, I'm going to be leaving in about two months to move back to America. Mm -hmm. So suddenly Toyota faced the situation of not having a, a, a native speaker of English in headquarters uh, to handle foreign press, which would be really crazy because at the time, Toyota was like the third largest automaker right. in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Big um, business here in the States. So um, the problem is uh, Toyota traditionally only hires once a year out of college. So if you want, for example, a foreigner to come work in, in Japan, um, then the, the head of the department would actually request um, of HR in around November that they want a foreigner. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds crazy, but... Um, and then what happens is they go through a process, they come to a few schools here in the United States, like Yale, uh, uh, UCLA, et cetera, and they, they hire people to come to Japan to work. And those people would arrive in generally in March or April. Okay. So when this, when this, these people um, announced, these two foreigners who were working there announced that they were going to be leaving the company, Toyota would have to have waited until November in order to order a new foreigner that would arrive in March because it, they have to go through the process. The it, process is very clear. It, you hire once a year. It's, it's made to work when things are really stable. You're not used to having people having this strange turnover at strange times of the year. And so that's what they're that's what they're used to doing. And suddenly the person who became my boss was obviously freaked out and said, well, we can't not have a native speaker of English in our department um, for what, eight months. So he actually used his network and found uh, through a friend of a friend of a friend, me, Okay. Uh, someone who, uh, you know, was a could be a good technical translator, could also handle media inquiries, et cetera. And so I kind of came in the back door. But that gives you a real, a real indication of the type of company you're dealing with. You're dealing with a company that has very strict processes in place. And they work extremely well 
as long as everything's working. And then when things go bad, then they're then they're they're frantically running around trying to figure out what I call MacGyver, the MacGyver uh, fix to to things. And the hiring of me was actually a MacGyver fix. Um, and so I was I worked there for a couple of years, and and then I finally proved myself worthy of being a. a a lifetime employee, which would mean different pay and, and, mm -hmm. and things like that. I put in the word to HR. Now, HR just, just doesn't just change your contract. They actually re-interviewed me for my position. Even though my boss said, this is what we wanted to, what we wanted to do, just sign the paperwork. No, they said, you're going to have to come all the way to Toyota City, which is a two-hour train ride. Why? Just because that's practice? Because or? that's the practice. And so I went to this room with one chair and four evaluators. They interviewed me, asked me questions about my career choices and my history and all these other things. What were some of the questions? I'm curious. Oh, boy, you're asking you're asking an old man to really... <laughs> <laughs> you see my gray hair here? No, I mean... They're... Because I'm wondering, you know, especially now, so in certain corporations, you know, what kind of animal do you think you are? Or, oh, no, you know, it's, not, it's, like nothing, it's nothing like that. It's like, so, you know, so why did you why did you first start studying Japanese? What is your interest in Japanese culture? What do you like about Toyota? What do you dislike about Toyota? Those types of questions. Was it's there any like... questions that were, that stood out that were different because of their culture as opposed to the way Americans... Uh, interview people um, well you know there's not not necessarily in my in my interview but you know we're dealing with a different culture here and so there's some things that are not um, faux pas there are some things that in America you cannot ask about you cannot ask someone um, if they're planning on having a child or or if they're married actually and um, they can't ask this in, oh yeah in sure Tokyo. you know and, and um, so I mean I didn't get those questions but the 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 thing is that we're dealing with a different culture and we have different norms. So I think it's we have to be careful when we do comparisons across cultures that way because they they definitely can ask questions that you that you can't ask in the United States. But um, you know you're dealing with a different culture and if you want to live there and you have to kind of play by their rules. There were a number of congressional hearings, as we said, on Toyota's safety issues. And during the hearings, the chairman of the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform said blame has to be shared by both Toyota for failing its customers and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration who failed to follow through with more aggressive more follow through more aggressively on complaints. Now did you did you get a chance to see any of the hearings? Yeah, I did. I I, I wanted to tune in to see. I actually uh well, I've met Mr. Toyota and Mr. Inaba who um they're both really really wonderful uh people. I was going to ask how are their personalities? Yeah, how really, are they as people? They're really really great people. And uh And know, he seemed so... very humble in the hearings, which I noticed some critics jumped on. Like, right. oh, he's being secretive. You know, the president of Toyota is being secretive, but that was more of a cultural thing. Yeah, oh, I I definitely agree. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, this is America. We're a very litigious society. Um, we like to sue everyone and everything. We like we like our politicians to get up there and rant and rave publicly. Um, and, uh, you know, if you compare the United States to Japan, for example, Japan in the entire country has fewer than 30,000 lawyers, which is fewer than the entire state of Michigan. One state in this union has more lawyers than the entire country of Japan. Right. And Japan has about half the population of the United States. Think about that. This is not a culture that you're always going to court over everything. And uh, so they tend to be very... You know, they just look at these issues a little differently. And, you know, there are a lot of people have criticized Toyota for its, you know, its slow coming out. Um, and it really reminded me of the um, the Obama uh, administration's response to the underwear bomber. OK, okay so you remember this back. Yeah. This happened uh, right around uh, New Year's time. And, uh, and for course, those who might not remember it, refresh their memory. There was this uh, individual who had gotten on a plane in Europe and uh, had sewn 
explosives into his underwear. He got through the screening process, got uh, the plane basically was getting ready to land in Detroit. He tried to set off the bomb and was tackled by other members of the of the of the uh, the passenger uh, compartment and the crew. And the bomb and did go off, bomb, but it didn't really uh, affect anybody because it was a malfunction in the yeah, bomb. Yeah, it was it was a it was a malfunction in the bomb. But but what after but after that happened, of course, you know, no one really knew why this guy got through. Now, in America, we want the president to come out immediately and say, you know, this is terrible and, and we, you know, we're, we know exactly what happened. But the reality is that we didn't know what happened. Right. And so Obama actually, President Obama actually spent several days, um, I think it was like three days, trying to figure out what exactly had happened before he addressed the nation. And he was roundly criticized for doing that, uh, for, for taking three whole days to figure out what was going on. And America really likes to have this kind of quick... Microwave um, society. Microwave, yeah, it really is, and uh, and so Toyota, with these uh, with these uh, these re these recalls, I mean, it was arguable of whether they not, they had enough data to understand really what the cause was. I mean, they did replace the accelerator units in Europe, but they don't they didn't necessarily know if that was really the the resolution to to the issue. Right. Um, and so you see this now in the United States. They came up with a MacGyver fix. Why? Because America wants a quick fix. Right. Um, and that is putting this little piece of metal inside the accelerator unit to keep it from potentially uh, jamming uh, when it when there's condensation inside the unit. And, um, you know, for me, having known the engineers, there's no way that the Toyota engineers in Japan would 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 want that as a long term solution. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, next year, they're not going to have any of these units with metal shivs in them. Okay? Right. This is really to placate the American public who's freaking out about 200 incidents or 300 incidents out of 8 million cars. From an engineering perspective, they need to have enough data in order to figure out what's going on. And. The, and that's going to take time. And that's going to take time. And so Toyota's response initially was, well, let's get enough data. And the engineers, if you if you give them 200 data points out of 8 million, is it really enough for them to, to act on? Yes, it is a terrible tra you know, uh, tragedy that people actually died as a result of this. But Toyota, in order to actually fix it long term, needs time to, f to figure it out. You know, it's not going to do anyone any good to just try to come out and publicly, uh, you know, stone all of the <laughs> all of the executives because in, in the end, you, everyone just wants the same thing. The, the problem resolved. This is Forum Conversations on 90.7 WFUV-FM. I'm Robin Shannon. I'll be right back to continue my conversation with Fordham Management Professor Benjamin Cole about Toyota's recent troubles and the company's corporate culture. The Bronx is a borough that conjures up a wide variety of images. Hip-hop, the Yankees, the zoo. And if you're of a certain age, you might think of the urban decay of the 1970s and 80s. Hi, I'm George Bodarki. Coming up on this morning's Cityscape, we'll take a look at how Hollywood has depicted the Bronx over the years. That Cityscape, this morning at 7.30, right here on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Professor Cole, although Toyota has had the most recent and most publicized trouble with sudden acceleration malfunction, it's not the only car company that's had this problem. So what's going on with these cars? So if you go back in time, I mean, when, you, when, when we were growing up, um, every car that was out there was purely mechanical. Mm -hmm. So in other words, when you, for example, when you pressed on the brakes, mm -hmm. you actually pressed mechanically the brake pads onto the spinning wheels. Um, but in the, in basically in the late 80s, they started introducing these electronic systems in the high-end cars, like the Lexuses and the Mercedes. 
And eventually those same systems started to trickle down into more, more uh, cheaper cars mm -hmm. uh, or more general cars. And uh, these systems include things like anti-lock braking systems, uh, traction control systems, etc. And I don't know if you've ever driven one of these cars before, but you're on ice and it starts to slip or you press on the brake and you hear this grinding sound right. or, or it kind of makes this... Like a uh, vibration. This vibration sound, right? And, you know, they tell you what you should do is just slam on the brakes and hold it down as strong as possible, even if, even if you feel that kind of vibration. Mm -hmm. Because what's happening is you're essentially engaging a computer. Mm -hmm. The computer is pumping the brakes many times faster than you could possibly pump them. I mean, if you try to pump your leg, you cannot get that same number Speed. of pumps as as the computer going gen, 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 gen. Mm -hmm. and so these systems have been wonderful they've really helped save a lot of lives etc but they also run on software mm -hmm. and anyone who has ever owned a microsoft product has in, has in, encountered either the computer freezing up or getting the blue screen of death mm -hmm. and wondering what did i do i didn't do anything right. it's just not <laughs> functioning and i need to restart my computer well could you imagine getting that type of error when you are driving, driving a car. 70 miles an hour down, down the Jersey Turnpike. Mm -hmm. That's what's going on. And, and, and well, what I think is going on. Okay. And, you know, and Toyota, Toyota has, has said, um, no, it's not, it is not electronic. And, and I actually bought uh, a copy of uh, what Jim Lentz, who is the CEO of Toyota Motor Sales, that's the U.S. sales arm um, here, said in his uh, testimony to the Committee on Energy and Commerce, he actually said, we are confident that no problems exist with the electronic throttle control systems in our vehicles. And uh, and when I when I read that, I was just I was like, well, you know, the lawyers are going to have a field day with that right. because to, for you to actually come out and say unequivocally, we are confident that no problem exists. And then a couple of years from now, they actually discover that there is an electronic problem. You've got yourself you know, one gigantic lawsuit. Or a bigger lawsuit. Or a bigger lawsuit than, than what's what you going actually, on now. You actually did. I mean, and it's much better to say, you know, to, to say, you know, we truly, we truly believe that no such problems exist and we have these auxiliary systems. We are continuing to look at um, if this could possibly be a problem. We definitely want to resolve it. Um, but instead to actually have them come out and say we're confident that no problems exist, I thought was a little strong. Um, especially when there's a lot of people involved with the auto industry, including outside experts who really believe that perhaps it is a combination of either these electronic systems, which is just software, um, and, um, and, and mechanical systems. So, you know, going back to these cars that we grew up in th with in the 70s, everything was mechanical. And when you pressed on the brake, you knew you were pressing on the brake. Well, now everything is by wire. So you press on the brake, you actually um, are pressing a computer button. Right. And the car actually generates a fake feel for you. Okay. It's a, to make you feel like you were actually pressing well, you're on doing bricks. something. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so they actually, it's a manufactured feel generated by a computer to trick you into believing that you're actually that in you're control. Doing something. But it's actually a computer that's controlling it. And that's on and so many of the systems now, whether it's the braking system, the power steering system, the airbag system is electronic now, um, et cetera. And uh, so when you start adding in all of these software components together, it's, it's hard to say whether or not it is purely an electronic problem if it is uh, some uh, a mechanical problem, which is what Toyota believes it or was, or a combination of both, or a combination of the both, and that is the most difficult thing, um, and um, and that's going to take time, and it's going to take a lot, and it's going to take a lot of work to figure it out. Anyone who's out there who's a programmer knows debugging is ninety percent of the work 
but you can't go and say, well, we're going to make these manual overrides, but we still don't believe that the that the electronics could possibly be a cause. Right. I mean, that, it, it, there's like a, a real cognitive dissonance there to say, well, it's not that cause, but we're going to put an override in just in case it is the cause. Um, do but, you think but maybe? It's wise, but it's wise for them to do so because. Um, you know, the, these electronic systems, the, the code is getting longer and longer and longer. And in fact, I don't know if you heard, but the, the Toyota Prius actually had, a, had its own braking recall. Mm -hmm. And the solution was actually you take your car in, they plug in a, basically a, a plug into your, into your car and essentially flash the hard drive with new software. Hmm. The the actual cause of the Toyota uh, the the Prius braking problem is a software problem, and they recognize it, and it takes about forty five minutes to do. Mm -hmm. It's just like you know uh, putting a virus software on your computer or you know reinstalling Word because it started getting funky on you. Mm -hmm. Well, that's essentially what they're going to do with your Prius if you take it in. So it's just a a, a software thing, and uh, um, which it sounds it, like that's the big problem that, well, that we that, don't understand how cars work. So yes, um, and it's really a pro you know like I I, I have a cousin who you know she, she could listen to a car and she could you know back in the 70s of course she could listen to a car and say oh i know exactly what's wrong right she could just hear the purring of the engine and know what part was wrong you can't do that these days you take your car into a dealer they plug it into a computer mm -hmm. and the computer actually spits out a whole bunch of codes to tell them what's what's working what's not what fuses might need to be you know replaced etc it is literally like driving a computer these days right and um the average consumer doesn't understand that, but that means there's going to be a lot more potential for flaws to creep in because you know, every program has those glitches where it gets caught up doing some process and, and then you get stuck. And the danger there's a real danger in that, and that's why you're going to start seeing more of these me mechanical override systems for different parts. Now, uh, Professor Cole, Toyota began ru running a, a new ad campaign at the beginning of March where the company is playing up brand loyalty and they're sort of spotlighting satisfied customers. And they're also offering incentives for like new car buyers. But critics are saying that it's too soon for the company to bypass the safety concerns. So what is Toyota's best strategy, in your opinion, for putting out these ads? Because they want to talk about their quality. That's something that they had a long tradition of doing. Um, but here you have some people saying, okay, we need to deal with the safety issues first. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I, I, I do, ha having known a lot of Toyota engineers, I can assure you that they are really good at what they do and really honestly care about making good products. I mean, even, even the engineers who made these products, these small parts inside some engine somewhere that no one could ever see were so proud of what they had done with the bore stroke or or how they had affected the resistance and they're you know it's good I, as I tell my students you know the sooner we all understand that we're all geeks about something the world's going to be a much better place uh, of course there's some geeks it's okay to be a geek about you can be a geek about baseball right that's cool but if you're a geek about harp ooh you're a loser well I mean Toyota engineers are geeks you know and that's a good thing right. they, they really care about those little widgets and those what's it's and they really want to make them really high quality. So I, I guarantee you that the Toyota engineers are doing everything they can to 
figure out what the cause is and make sure that this doesn't happen again. Professor Cole, let's deal with the perception of uh, Toyota's cars now that the recall has happened. It's really interesting because when Toyota first came to the United States, they brought this car over. I think it was called the Toyopet. And uh, people bought them and started driving on the roads out, out in California. This is like, in, I want to say it's in like the 1950s or something. And the wheels actually fell off the car. Oh, wow. Right? And Toyota, and you know, of course, at the time, the, the guys in charge were like, oh, okay, well, we're not ready for the U.S. market yet. We can't handle the high-speed highways that they mm-hmm. have. I mean, in Japan, it's it's just going through really, really narrow streets. So you don't have to get up to 60 miles an hour or mm-hmm. anything like that. So when Toyota first came here, they had this real travesty um, in terms of quality. And actually, some of the dealers pushed the cars into the bay and just said, we don't want, you know, we can't even sell these. They're just junk. Forget it. And uh, Toyota went back to the drawing board and spent several years rethinking the vehicles that they were building and then came back with a much stronger car um, that was able to withstand. And of course, everyone knows the history since then. Uh, Toyota has grown on to become essentially, I think right now, is the number. Yeah, best, not only best-selling cars, but also... Um, the uh, the number one automaker and uh, long lasting consumer yeah. reports always has it at at least in the top three. It, it was it, one of the fun things about being a Toyota in the PR division. We always have these these crazy people call you know either sending letters in with pictures of them with their car with a million miles on it. And we had this couple who had actually driven seven years in their Land Cruiser. Mm-hmm. They had gone basically almost everywhere in the world driving this one car. They put their laundry in this like tub on top of the car, and as they were driving, the fact that it was like shaking back and forth was would actually wash, wash the, the co- would actually wash, wash the clothes. Wash the clothes. And so, <laughs> so they had driven all around the world in this car. It was like over a million miles. In Did they take pictures? Oh yeah, and they had this. They had the, you know this ongoing kind of I guess you would call it like a like a blog, but it wasn't really a blog back then, uh, where they would kind of update this website. And uh, they uh, they wanted to come to Japan in order to meet with the president of the co- of the company to tell them how happy uh, to they tell were them with, how this happy car. with the car. I mean, it, it, we have so many stories like that of people around the world who really uh, love Toyota cars, and 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 for good reason because they just last and last and last and last. And it's only when we when Toyota started moving from the pure mechanical cars to the electronic cars that you started finding more problems, I think. And my final question, do you own a Toyota? No, I actually live in the city, so I don't need a car. <laughs> <laughs> so you do the subways. I do the subways. <laughs> yes, I do. Thank you so much, Benjamin Cole. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was great fun. That was Benjamin Cole, Assistant Professor of Management at Fordham University. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Next week, Mary Wilson will be your host. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. Stay with us, George Bodarki and Cityscaper next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.